Well, good morning. It is a pleasure to see you this morning. I'm glad you've joined us here for worship. Um, thank you, Henry, for leading us. Every now and then I do throw Henry curveballs and ask him to consider leading us in a new song. Um, uh, over the next few weeks, as we look at the life of David, um, uh, for those that are familiar with your Bibles, you, you should know that there are, there are episodes in David's life where he writes psalms. And we have a psalm based on David's exile and flight from Absalom, and it is Psalm 3. And so the song we sang earlier, Lord, from deep I call, is a song that is based on um, Psalm 3, the fact that I am trusting God in the midst of my crisis. As all things around me rise up against me, I am going to trust in the Lord. That's why we sang um, uh, the, the last song, It is well with my soul, even when there are difficulties around me. And so turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15 as we look at faith in crisis. Faith in crisis. Absalom, to give you the context again, Absalom, David's son, has rebelled against his father. He has gone to Hebron under the guise of peace and has had a conspiracy to be crowned king in Hebron. David has been betrayed by one of his own children. And all of this is because God's word is coming true. David is facing the fullest expression of God's consequences for his sin regarding Uriah and Bathsheba. Now hear me. Though David is under God's discipline, his salvation is not in question. David is forgiven. David is under God's covenant of grace. But nonetheless... David has to walk through this discipline. These are the consequences of David's own choices. Now, many of us should be able to identify with that. We've all had experiences in our lives where we've had to sit under God's discipline because of choices that we have made. doesn't mean our salvation is in question. It just means we have to walk through the season of the consequences. Now, the question that really matters here with David and for us is will we face the Lord's discipline with faith? Will we learn and grow and mature? So in our text, will David be a man after God's own heart, not just when things are going well, but in the midst of discipline, in the midst of trials, and in the midst of suffering? Now again, that is a question for all of us. Are you simply a fair-weather Christian? Do you only follow Jesus when things are going well? If so, you need to realize that that's not biblical faith. You see, life isn't always, as I say frequently, roses and puppies. It's not always sunny and 70. Unless you live in San Diego. Alright? All of us will face trials. If you've lived long enough, you know that is true. Now hear me, some of our trials are simply part of living in a broken world. It's just the brokenness of the world around us. But some of our trials are of our own doing. But both bring us to a crisis of faith. Will we face our, face our trials in faith, whether or not they're of our own doing? Will we sit under the discipline and admonition, under the discipline of the Lord in faith? Now hear me, can we say like Job, if you remember Job, can we say like Job, whose trial was not of his own doing, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him? Or will we say like David, 
whose trial is of his own doing. In verse 26 of our, of our, of our text today, Here I am, let the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, in regards to our faith, trials and suffering simply show us what is at the bottom. If any trial can destroy your faith, then what was there was not biblical faith. Biblical faith endures and perseveres. As Adrian Rogers famously said, faith that fizzles at the finish was faulty from the first. So this morning, I want to show you how faith operates for David even in the midst of his deepest and darkest moments under the Lord's discipline. So I have four principles of faith in crisis I want to show you this morning. Because maybe you're in crisis. Maybe you're, in the, maybe you're here today and you're in a crisis. Maybe it's of your own doing. Or maybe it's not. But either way, David gives us four principles here um, of how faith operates in crisis. So here's the first one. We'll read the text as we go through to save time. The first principle is this, if you're taking notes. Number one, faith trusts God not knowing the outcome. Faith trusts God not knowing the outcome. How often, how few times do we know the outcome of our crisis? If you knew the outcome, there would be no need for faith. But faith trusts God, not knowing the outcome. Look at verses 13 through 18 of 2 Samuel 15. This is right after David hears the news of Absalom being crowned king in Hebron. It says there, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. So here's the story. David hears the report that the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Maybe one of the 200 innocent men who witnessed Absalom's coronation service unawares brought the news back to David. In those very few words, though, David understands the seriousness of the situation that he and all of Jerusalem are in. It's one thing for Absalom to take vengeance on his brother Amnon and kill him. It's another thing altogether to declare yourself king of Israel. After all, a nation cannot have two kings. David knows here that his family and all of Jerusalem are in danger. Hebron is roughly 30 miles from Jerusalem, basically a two-day's march for an army. It won't take long for Absalom to mount an offensive, especially if he has the help of commanders and garrisons all throughout Israel. David has two choices. He can either stay and fight or he can flee, but either way, he doesn't know the outcome. You might be thinking here, well, If David really trusts God, if David trusts that God has made him king, he should stay and fight. Well, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. 
You see, earlier in David's life, God told him to fight the Philistines. And just after that, God told David not to fight, but that that God would fight for him. We're not told here that David has any direct word from the Lord. If he had one, the writer would tell us. And so in these moments when there's no direct word from the Lord, we must use the faculties given to us to make a decision that we think will most honor God. And so David chooses, not knowing the outcome, to try to save as many lives as possible. He cares for the innocent lives of those in Jerusalem, including his family, and he chooses to flee. Now again, hear me. When you don't know the outcome... Sometimes you have to make a choice in faith and leave the outcome to God. I believe that's what David is doing here. After all, again, we have David's own thoughts on the matter over in Psalm 3. Let me read you three verses from there. This is a psalm that David wrote in some time as he flees Jerusalem. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. David says, even in flight, O Lord, you are my shield and my glory. Now, this same issue, by the way, of choosing to either fight or flee, comes up in the life of Paul. In Acts 9, when some Jews are sent from Damascus to kill him, Paul has to choose, am I going to stay in this city and risk them catching me and killing me, or do I flee Damascus? He could have chosen to stay and trust God to protect him, or he could use his brains and take steps to preserve his life. And so Paul chooses to flee. He's let down out of the city by a basket. He chose to be rescued. Now the question is, was he not acting in faith? You see, here, hear me. Faith doesn't call us to lay aside means of action. To the contrary, faith should compel us to be men and women of action. And we'll see this truth played out in the coming verses. So here again, David doesn't know how all of this is going to come about, how all of this is going to work out, but he trusts the Lord, takes steps to protect others, and he embraces exile. Now, in your daily lives, when crises come looking for you, and you don't know the outcome, the question is, will you choose in those moments to have a a heart of faith that trusts the Lord, no matter what? No matter what. Number two, the next thing we learn from David here is that faith embraces the gifts that God provides. Look there at verses 19 through 22. After all these people pass before the king, the Pelethites, the Cherethites, and the Gittites, it says, Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, Absalom. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there your servant will be. 
And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. So get the picture. There's a parade on the way out of the city. David watches all of those going into exile. He's going to be the last one to leave the city. So the Palethites, the Cherethites, and the, and the Gittites, all foreigners, by the way, they all pass by with David on his way out of the city. And the writer pauses to give a brief exchange between King David and a Philistine from Gath, the hometown of Goliath, named Ittai. Ittai had just come into the king's presence and to the king's service when? Yesterday. Yesterday, he comes on duty with the king. Think about that. And David knows it. And so David says to him, go back, go back. There's no reason for you and all of your little ones to risk your life for me. Go back and serve Absalom. Go back to the king. He sends them under, under the safety of God's covenant faithfulness. May the Lord bless you and keep you. David does not expect Ittai to risk his life for David. That's incredible. But Ittai protests. Ittai came into the service yesterday and he protests. He swears an oath by the Lord. David, you are king. I'm following you to the death. Now think of how this stands in complete contrast to what's happening to David. His, son, his own son Absalom has betrayed him and brought war on Israel. And against this backdrop of darkness and treachery, Ittai is this shining star of loyalty and faithfulness. In the middle of this crisis stands a faithful Philistine with his children. How this must have encouraged David. Now let us all remember that even in our crises and in the midst of the Lord's disciplines, the Lord is faithful to send us encouragements. There is sustaining grace to hold us and give us strength to persevere. Ittai is the Old Testament version of Onesiphorus. If you don't know who that is, just listen. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul recounts how he had been abandoned by all those that he had trusted in Asia. And he felt betrayed. But in the midst of that, God sends Paul a gift. And that gift is a person named Onesiphorus. Listen to what Paul says in verses 15 through 18 of 1 Timothy 1. He says there, he says to Timothy, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Everybody else abandoned Paul because he was in jail. And Paul says, this is what he says. He says, but when Onesiphorus arrived in Rome, he searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Because you know all well how he rendered service to me at Ephesus. In the midst of Paul's imprisonment and abandonment, he sends him a gift. Now listen, one of God's greatest gifts in supporting us in the midst of crises and suffering is the presence, help, love, and support of faithful friends. 
If you have faithful friends, praise God. They are gifts from the Lord. Meant to help you and sustain you in crises. And hear me. God even sends us these gifts from those you wouldn't expect it. David, did not, David should not have expected this kind of gift in the form of a Philistine, an exile, an outcast, part of those that Israel had defeated. But Ittai is a gift. Ittai and Onesiphorus are gifts. And hear me, if you're not in the middle of a crisis, then you need to be that gift to someone else who is. Maybe even to someone who wouldn't expect it from you. Not just your closest friends, but to anyone who might be in need. Think of the Good Samaritan here. That Israelite didn't expect help from that guy, but he got it. He was a gift in the midst of a crisis. Third, not only does faith receive the gifts that God provides in those moments, but faith rests in the will of God. Look at verses 23 through 26. It says there, And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up. And behold, Zadok also came with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, I, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Again, the picture, everyone is weeping and leaving. The Levites come to David with the ark. They're probably thinking this, Absalom may take the city, but we have the ark of God. God will protect us and bless us because we have the ark. David will have none of that. David will have none of that. David instead chooses to rest in the sovereign will of God. He refuses to treat the ark as a means of manipulating God for his own ends. For David, the ark isn't a good luck charm. It's not a talisman. It's not to be used as a gimmick or as a rabbit foot's kind of faith. Think about that. There's a whole lot of people that have a rabbit's foot kind of faith, that they have to have a lucky charm that God is with them. That's not biblical faith in a sovereign God. The ark did represent God's covenant that he had made with his people. It represented his presence among its people, but it's not David's. It's not his to take. David refused to treat God or the ark this way. Listen, faith understands rightly that God is not to be manipulated. God is to be honored, glorified, and obeyed even in the midst of crisis. So David basically says this. If God chooses to be gracious, let him be gracious. If he chooses for me to be exiled, so be it. He's God, not me. Send the ark back to where it belongs. Now I could make an application here about others who seek to manipulate people by claiming they can manipulate God by, what, by whatever you give or by how you pray or by what you do. And David rejects that kind of thinking altogether. 
David chooses rather to submit himself to submit himself to the sovereign purposes of the true king. There is no greater affirmation of faith in the midst of a crisis than to say, this is what you could write over your doorpost. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Now let me ask you, does your faith allow you to speak like that? Does your faith understand that God is free to do to us as he sees fit for his glory and his purposes? Go read Romans 9. I would hope so, because this is the kind of faith that unleashes biblical obedience. This is the kind of faith that will endure hardship, suffering, sickness, disease, persecution, and even death. This is the kind of faith that says, if Jesus wants me to go to the ends of the earth to make disciples, let him but speak and I will go. This is the kind of faith that says, if Jesus wants me to face cancer, then he'll walk with me every step of the way and it'll be okay. Faith rests in the will of God. Fourth, and faith uses the means that God provides. Faith uses the means that God provides. Look there at verses 27 through 37. We see this in three short episodes. The first is verses 27 through 29. Look what happens after he sends the ark back to Jerusalem. He says, The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimahaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained here. So first, the first means we see is that David uses the means of gathering information and intelligence. That's what David does, right? David has the support of Zadok and his son, and Abiathar and his son. They're priests, they're Levites. And David instructs them to return to the city with the ark in peace, Continue ministering before the Lord and the people. But David also wants them to do something else. David wants them to gather intelligence and information for him and to meet him in the wilderness with it. You see, if David is to stay alive and to avoid search parties, and if he's to possibly mount a counteroffensive against Absalom, he needs intelligence. Now hear me. David doesn't expect the Lord to beam information into his head that he does not collect. That's a lesson for some of you as you study for exams. College students, when you go, Oh Lord, please beam knowledge into my brain that I did not study and put there. That's not how it works, folks. David uses means. He has someone collect information and gather intelligence and send it to him. Don't expect God to do what you are not willing to go and also do. Okay? Now, here we go. God uses means and so does David. Now look at verse 31. Here we go. David gets another bit of news. And it was told, David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, 
Please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now what we see here is that faith also uses the means of prayer. David absolutely rests in God's will and providence. Let God do to me whatever he will. And at the same time, he prays that God would intervene on his behalf. Now the news of Ahithophel siding with Absalom is devastating. David knows, he's one of David's leading officials and advisors. David knows just how wise and effective Ahithophel can be. David knows that his own success has been in part due to Ahithophel's wise counsel. David has wise counselors around him. So David prays that God would confound Ahithophel's counsel and that he will, that he will assuredly be giving to Absalom. Devastating news. David immediately prays. That's faith. O oh Lord, confound his counsel. And now look at verses 32 through 37. Right after David prays, he says, While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with a coat torn and dirt on his head. He's in mourning. And David said to him, If you go with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and you say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimahaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering the city. So you see, all of this took some time. Now hear me. Just as soon as David prays, think about this, David bows his head or looks to heaven, O Lord, confound the counsel of Ahithophel. As soon as David prays, he looks up and sees Hushai the archite, David's friend and confidant. David immediately sees him as the answer to that prayer. Immediately. This is the answer to my prayer. David then sends Hushai with a plan to defeat Ahithophel's council and gather more intelligence to send with Abiathar and Zadok. Hear me. Again, sometimes we think God's providence is so mystical and magical and out of the ordinary. Look what God doesn't do. God's answer to David's prayer isn't to strike down Ahithophel with a lightning bolt. Sometimes you might pray for God to do that to your enemies. That's not, God, that's not what God does. God doesn't strike down Ahithophel with a lightning bolt. And by chance, Ahithophel isn't ran over by some estranged goat pulling a cart down the streets of Jerusalem. Huh, Ahithophel got hit by a, a, a cart today. And Ahithophel doesn't suddenly lose the ability to uh, think or speak. No. God simply sends Hushai, David's friend, to him. And that's enough. That's enough. 
Listen, the answer to our prayers are rarely something crazy or bizarre. God's providence and the means that God uses are typically very ordinary. So ordinary, in fact, that most people would simply write it off as coincidence. <laughs> well, Hushai just happened to be there. So-and-so just happened to be there. Listen, here is the simple principle for us that we see in David. Pray and act. Act and pray. Pray and act. Act and pray. Those two things go together. And when you don't hold those two things together, you ultimately run to two opposite errors. On the one side is the passive, let go and let God. Y'all have all heard that before. Well, let me tell you that that error refuses to use God's appointed means to accomplish God's appointed purposes. You can't simply let go and let God. You have to use means. And then the other error on the other side is the prayerless, faithless, God helps those who help themselves. By the way, neither of those phrases appear in the Bible. Let go and let God, not in the Bible. God helps those that help themselves, not in the Bible. That error refuses to walk with God by faith, trusting in His grace and guidance. Now, instead of those two errors, pray and act. Act and pray. Depend on God and use all the means that God has given you. Pray diligently. Study God's Word for answers. Walk by the Spirit. Listen to wise, godly counsel. Lean on your Christian friends. Embrace the support of your church family. All of those means are meant to support you in crisis. Now, throughout this chapter, we have seen David's faith in the midst of crisis. Faith trusts God not knowing the outcome. Faith embraces the gifts that God provides. And those gifts are usually at just the right time. Faith rests in the will of God no matter what it may be. Faith trusts God to do what is right in His eyes. And faith uses the means that God provides. Faith takes steps and moves us to action. Now, as I close, I want you to focus on verse 30. Hone in here for a minute. Look at verse 30. I skipped it earlier. It says there, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads as they went up, weeping as they went. Get the picture. David walks out of Jerusalem. He ascends the Mount of Olives to exit the city. In my estimation, this was the darkest day in David's life. This day. But it was still a day filled with trusting the Lord. David and the company with him are weeping because he has been betrayed and rejected as king. Now here's the point. David's sufferings here 
will find their ultimate fulfillment some 1,000 years later in David's descendant, Jesus the Christ. All of David's sufferings here very much foreshadow the darkest day in the life of Jesus when he too was betrayed by one of his own and rejected by Israel. On Jesus' darkest day, he also walked out of Jerusalem, crossed the Kidron Valley, and ascended the Mount of Olives, surrounded by the few that stayed with him. And there he prayed, and he submitted himself to the Lord's will. Like David, Jesus is also weeping. He isn't weeping because his throne or rule as king is in danger. No, no, that is not the case. He is weeping in compassion over those who know not what they do and those who do not know the consequences of their rejection. And even in Jesus' sufferings, his heart is not on their judgment, but on their salvation. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would long to gather you under my wings as a, as a hen gathers her chicks. But you were not willing. He weeps over the city. Jesus willingly leaves the Mount of Olives to be arrested, to be beaten, to be unlawfully tried and convicted. And ultimately, he willingly dies on a borrowed cross that belonged to an insurrectionist like Barabbas and like Absalom and like you and like me. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus willingly died for rebels so that we could be saved by His grace through faith in His name. That we could embrace Him as King and experience forgiveness and joy and eternal life forever with Him. Because we are all Barabbas. And we are all Absalom. And the good news of the gospel is that we all can be saved by grace in His name. By grace through faith in His name. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Would you pray with me, Father? I pray, Lord, that all of us would find faith in the midst of our crisis where we would trust You, receiving the gifts that You provide, using the means that You provide, and ultimately submitting ourselves to the will of God. And Father, may we not ultimately be more like David, but Father, may we see David as prefiguring Christ our Savior, who willingly went to the cross on our behalf, and Father, may we, instead of rejecting Him by our sin, come to Him in repentance and faith, embracing Him as Lord. And Lord, may we walk forever by faith in His name. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.